Imagine you're driving along the freeway, a stretch of road you've traveled on so many times that you're pretty much on autopilot. But up ahead, you're about to run into a problem, a sea of red lights and screeching tires, and all of a sudden your predictable journey has been replaced by chaos. You're looking at the biggest traffic jam you've ever seen. Well, that's basically what's happened to the global supply chain over the past 21 months. Our seas, our roads, our skies, all used to transporting goods and essentials across the globe with relative ease, have hit major traffic. And because each link in the chain is interconnected, the effects have been felt across continents, spinning out into every corner of our lives from the PPE that's meant to protect us to the tiniest spokes on the machines that help us get around. No one wanted to take the bus. You don't want to take an Uber. You want to just be outside. A lot of people got restricted to home and, and just to move your legs. Um, that was really important for a lot of people. Dimitri Rumschlag is a mechanical engineer and the owner of Z Cycle Shop. When the pandemic hit, his bike shop in Denver, Colorado became a hub. I mean, it was crazy. After that, you know, the pandemic hit, I had five or six people working around the clock, trying to keep up, just changing flats. Literally, we would have lines around the entire building of people who just needed a flat tire or a tube or something was wrong and they needed it so they could go ride. While the type of small business story we've mostly heard about during the pandemic has been about lost revenue, mass layoffs, and folks having to shut down completely, many bike stores across the country have actually had more customers than they could handle. In the first few months of 2020, more than $4 billion worth of bikes were sold in the US alone. That's a 62% increase from the year before. It was a safe way to be outside, movement when there was no movement a cultural metamorphosis to a hobby that Dimitri has loved since he was a kid. My mom got me a bike when I was, you know, one, one and a half, and I would use it to kind of learn how to walk. And then when I was two, I started riding, no training wheels, pedaling around, and I really never looked back. Yeah, I've done cross-country tours, bike racing, uh, adventure cycling. Wait, so you're like a professional biker, Dimitri. We don't like to use that term here. <laughs> I do my bike racing in jean shorts and cut off tees. And there's a fringe side of cycling, you know, guys like me. But people are warming up to the fact that it's an accessible adventure. There are a lot of options when it comes to where you can go, who you can even be when you're out cycling. You know, it kind of comes with its own personality. For guys like Dimitri who want other people to share in this passion, that means being able to supply people with bikes and the parts that make them. Dimitri, break it down for me a little. How many parts like make up the average bike? Okay, if you're putting a bike together from scratch, there's probably around 200 parts. You have little ball bearings, spokes, hubs, rims, tires, rim strips, chains, cogs, sprockets, cranks, bottom brackets, handlebars, plug, you know, there's this whole list, really long list, you know, individual parts. And some of those, you know, like spokes, there's like 72 spokes on a bike. And most of these parts are sourced from all over the world, which wasn't usually a problem for Dimitri's Colorado-based business until the pandemic, when COVID forced some of their most important suppliers to shut down factories. So Shimano's 
one of the oldest bicycle component companies in the entire world. Um, they're Japanese-based. They're integral to almost every bike company's bikes. They focus on high-quality drivetrain and transmission components. They make derailers. They make chains. They make cassettes, cogs, sprockets. Everything that makes the pedals go round. So how difficult was it during the pandemic? How difficult is it still in the pandemic to actually be able to get some of these integral Shimano parts that you're talking about? Some of them are out till 2023. When a Malaysia-based Shimano factory slammed on their brakes, it caused a ripple effect that made it to the other side of the world. And it made business much more difficult for small mum-and-pop shops like Dimitri's. These bigger businesses have the buying power. So as a small business, we have to work really closely with our local distributors to like reserve parts and stuff. Because a lot of these big businesses, like what we were seeing was, say the distributor got 50 boxes of tubes in. Within 30 seconds, they would all be gone. I would put 10 boxes in my cart. I would get one box. We were buying parts at full price from these big companies who would just buy up all of the stock, like literally immediately. It was just like the toilet paper thing. You know, people were freaking out that there wasn't going to be any. They went and bought everything. People did the same thing with bikes. Once they saw biking was getting really big, everyone just started buying everything like so quickly. It was just like, you know, I'm going to get it before the next guy gets it and I can't get it at all. There was a lot of fear that got generated around the pandemic and that caused a response of people kind of stockpiling a lot of stuff. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we're talking about how COVID-19 has created a moment for us to think critically about the systems that we've built and decide if they're serving us, all of us, well. Before the pandemic, most people had only the vaguest idea of what the global supply chain was, let alone what it actually meant for their day-to-day lives. But since COVID-19, we've become as intimately familiar with it as we are sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic. From toilet paper shortages to a lack of medical supplies to thousands of ships backed up at the California ports. And this traffic jam, this backlog of the small spokes that help us move, the computer chips that help us drive, the medical masks that protect our health, has revealed more than just how precarious it is when we're all trying to get to the same destination at the same time. It's shown us all that the very supply chain, this intricate system that we've relied on for so long, is more brittle than we imagined. Before the pandemic, I joke with people, I used to ask, where did that come from? And they would say, oh, I got it at Amazon, or I got it at Walmart. I said, no, no, no. How did the product get to Amazon? Or how did the product get to Walmart? Harvard Business School professor Willie Shi spent 28 years working in manufacturing and managing supply chains. When I... Uh, worked in industry, one of the things we did is we built manufacturing in Asia, and then we had those uh, products that we had to import into the United States, import into Europe, import into Japan, in fact. 
So I got a lot of practice working with suppliers, working with our own factory, moving goods around the world. Uh, and that was uh, really a very formative time for me because when we did this, we were doing it in the early 2000s, which was when we really started seeing globalization, in particular Asian manufacturing, for world markets take off. But the first real step towards globalization and the complex web of shipping that takes products all over the world today started in the 1950s, according to Willie. And it was rooted in the vision of an innovative businessman named Malcolm McLean. He had a trucking company and he moved cargo up and down the East Coast. In the 1950s, he had the idea that he could do it at a much lower cost by moving some of those trucks on ships along the intracoastal waterway, primarily connecting New York and Newark, New Jersey, with uh, ports in the south, like Mobile, Alabama, or Houston, Texas. That was before the days of uh, the interstate highway system, and increasing road congestion meant moving cargo by road was relatively time-consuming and expensive. And he thought he could do it cheaper. How expensive was it to ship goods at the time? Like, how expensive was it before Malcolm McLean decided to try and rethink or uh, retool the wheel, I guess? In those days, it was estimated that 60 to 75% of the cost of shipping something from one location to another was really spent in the ports and not at sea. It was all about loading and unloading. His longer-term vision was there had to be a better model for moving cargo less expensively using uh, containers, using steel boxes. And if you wanted to move cargo, how could you do that uh, as inexpensively as possible with the minimal amount of handling, with less risk of uh, theft or loss, which meant uh, how can I minimize the amount of times I have to repack it uh, when I move from, say, a truck to a ship or back and forth. So that was really the key. And uh, reducing the cost of moving cargo meant not just putting it into a box, but also a whole system of you know ports that can handle those boxes and cranes and trucks and how you use them all together. McLean's steel shipping containers became the global standard for moving goods around. And today, roughly 90% of the world's goods are transported by sea, with approximately 60% of them in steel shipping containers. That really opened up globalization. If shipping costs are very expensive, then it doesn't make sense to manufacture things far away. If, on the other hand, shipping costs are really low, especially using containers, and I have the ability to move large volumes, then it opens up the possibility of making things in low-cost countries. For the consumer, I mean, like for someone like me, how has McLean's vision trickled down all the way to me today and what I ate for breakfast, for example? Well, McLean's vision was really about reducing the cost of shipping. Now, let's talk about the strawberries you had for breakfast today. They were delicious, by the way. They were delicious. They were delicious, I'm sure. My sister-in-law is a strawberry grower in California, and she would tell you that strawberries are out of season right now. So then the question is, 
where did those strawberries come from and how did they get to you? Maybe they came from Florida, maybe they came from Mexico, maybe they came from South America, depending on the season. But because I can stack them in a refrigerated container and move them relatively inexpensively, you can have seasonal produce out of season. And that's something I think a lot of people take for granted. That's the thing about the global supply chain. Pre-COVID-19, it was functioning so smoothly, moving along like such a well-oiled machine, that the average consumer never really had to think about connecting the dots of what made their breakfast or drive to work possible. But the pandemic has changed all of that. Take, for example, the chip shortage that has affected everything from cars to video game consoles. If you think about all these suppliers, what they are connected by are logistics networks, truckers, air cargo operators, ocean shippers. So we have this complex web of suppliers connected to each other. And oftentimes those connections span the globe. So for example, it's not surprising if you manufacture a semiconductor chip in the United States, for that chip to be flown to Asia uh, for testing and then packaging, maybe in China, maybe in Malaysia, maybe in Vietnam. And then it will go to, say, a factory in China where it'll get put into a computer. And then it'll go somewhere else before it finally makes it to the customer. Perhaps one of the most damning elements of our current supply chain woes is that it's not just consumers who are unaware of the complicated nature of the logistics, but even governments and industry. And for Willie, who's written extensively about how to restore American competitiveness, understanding this is key. I think the pandemic exposed a number of things. First of all, the supply chains have many, many tiers to them. In other words, I might have a manufacturer who buys raw materials or parts or components from a supplier, and that supplier might have multiple suppliers as well. And I think the dirty little secret is that most companies don't know who their suppliers are beyond the second tier. In order to understand the supply chain, you really have to understand detail. You really need to understand how different parts function and how they function together, what the benefits are and what the costs are. So, for example, when the American government mandated that ports operate, the terminals operate 24 hours a day, I thought that was a move that lacked an insight. So if I have the port open at 3 a.m., and I'm a trucker who gets paid by how many loads I move, not by how many hours I work. If I pick up a container at 3 a.m., I don't have anywhere to take it because the distribution center I'm gonna take it isn't gonna open up until the morning, right? So why would I wanna come in the middle of the night? It sounds like in order to stay competitive and in order to prevent any kinds of future disruption when there is the next pandemic. We're going to have to see a radical rethinking from the U.S. government in how it thinks about these issues. I think understanding the details are very important. If you want the U.S. to be more self-sufficient in manufacturing key materials, 
then you really have to understand the changes you might have to make to overcome the cost differential. When we outsourced or offshored manufacturing from the U.S. primarily to Asia in the 2000s, we were moving from a high-cost country, the United States, to, say, China, where labor costs were very low. And the costs of moving that production over there were paid for by how much you saved in your manufacturing. Now, if you want to move from a low-cost country to a high-cost country like the U.S., then you really have to be innovative and change your manufacturing process. You have to innovate so that you can overcome that cost differential. But it's a complex problem. It's not just, I'm going to reverse offshoring, right? Because economics are against you on that. Rethinking the system doesn't mean throwing out globalization. That horse has already bolted from the stable. But it does mean thinking more resiliently. There's more room to innovate and rethink what it means to be competitive, while also not being too reliant on supply chains that will inevitably be jammed up again. I think it takes kind of a strategic view on what it is we want to really be good at in the United States. And on high-end semiconductors, I think it's important to be really good at that in the United States because that's fundamental to a lot of innovation in computing, in computing architectures that will be important for the future. Now, the second part of that answer really goes to what I think is a very important question, and that is, can the U.S. be self-sufficient in everything? And I think those days are gone. The world has gotten much too complex. So if instead what we can do is we can get to a state of interdependency with more trust so that we know we're not going to get cut off at critical times on critical commodities, then we'll be able to take advantage of the smart people in other parts of the world. If only one person in the entire company knew how to make PowerPoint slides, that would be quite a risk. And you would never let that happen. You would say, we actually need to train multiple people to be able to do this. Justin Rose oversees the industrials division at BCG. He thinks the increased frequency of black swan events should have prepared us all for our current supply chain woes. It's the same with supply chains. You know, if you have single points of failure and under, you know, even imaginable situations and scenarios, those points of failure can take the company down. It's irresponsible for an executive and for a, a management team to allow that to happen. We've seen the movie before. So, you know, the Fukushima earthquake in 2011, you know, one of the companies operating in the region, it's a story that some people know, but maybe others don't. It, it didn't actually suffer any damage itself, but its warehouse was in the exclusionary zone. And so they couldn't actually get to the warehouse. Now, as it turns out, they make a pigment that creates the shiny effect in paint on vehicles. And so when you look at that nice sheen, uh, that's what they made. And the rub was that they're the only supplier of this pigment in the world. And this was the only factory and warehouse that this pigment was stored in. And so no one realized this before the earthquake, but that very small thing brought several OEMs to their knees, uh, production lines down, uh, prevented you from buying vehicles in certain colors. OEMs are original equipment manufacturers, companies like Ford or John Deere that sit upstream in a supply chain. 
a major OEM like Toyota, for example, has hundreds of thousands of suppliers. And the idea that one weak spot can impact this global supply chain so greatly is actually quite eye-opening. We talked about COVID, we talked about Fukushima earthquake, and we talked about black swans. And at some level, you know, if it were a one-off, if each one of these was spaced out and you said, okay, that happened, um, but you know, the overall our, our global supply chain works pretty well the way it is, then you could understand that companies might just manage through that and then go back to sort of normal. But fundamentally, what we at BCG look at and what I believe is that the risk of one-off events is raising dramatically. Some of that is political tensions in the future. Some of that will be climate change, uh, workers' rights, jobs, as we think about uh, leveraging technology and automation. All of those things are creating a much more risk-likely environment. The question we have to ask then is how can people, business big and small, mitigate this risk when the stakes are so high? One of my clients is a big agricultural OEM, and I spoke with them about how do they think about the balance of you know, engineering this resiliency versus going for lowest cost? And one of the questions they were legitimately exploring was all the years of efficiency they've gotten when their factories went down for a month was like, what was better and worse? Like, should they, have they actually made money over the course of the last 20 years by creating this very, very efficient supply chain? Or did the losses of a month or two months of having factories go down actually offset that? And that's a much more, I would say, mature, intelligent, nuanced type of conversation that I believe companies are starting to have because, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic uh, and, you know, before it, some other events have started to shine a light on it. But it can't be just private industry that is taking the news traffic chopper's view of the logjam below. Government has to show up. What do you think the government's role is in changing supply chains, in reorienting our mindset maybe about supply chains and and the sort of each step of the chain, essentially? The government's critical. Like the government has levers, for example, as we look at the infrastructure package that's just passed that, you know, insist that, you know, certain percentages of what we're buying and investing are made in America or come from American uh, companies or sources. And so I think trying to help ensure that there's a base level of demand to give investors security that if they do make the investments to start to bring the supply chain back to the United States, that there'll be uh, an economic return for them. The second is just making it easy. I can't tell you the number of entrepreneurs that I speak with that talk about the hoops that they have to jump through at everything from the federal, but the state and even the local level around basic permitting, um, you know, trying to, you know, get into hiring workers, having electric grid upgrades uh, so that they can provide the power they need and so on and so forth. And then the third one I think is important, which I wouldn't say it's lost, but it's not been in the forefront of the recent conversation is creating the workforce. And if we're serious about, you know, creating some resiliency, bringing some of this supply chain back to the United States, that's a problem we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg on. And so, you know, we've become as a, a culture and a society very fixated on four-year degrees and, you know, white collar aspirations, et cetera. But there are major gaps in highly skilled manufacturing jobs that, you know, for many years, I think in the past and in the future could serve as the bedrock for real prosperity of the middle class. That future that Justin is talking about is one that might seem like a reversal in some respects, but actually echoes what Professor Willie Shee says, that in order to win the supply chain game, we may not want every aspect of it to be global. 
The vision that I have for the future is that supply chains go from being primarily global to primarily regional, and that we end up in a situation where most of the things that are consumed in the United States uh, are actually made in North America, if you will. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be everything's made in the United States, but you know, having uh, more integration between the United States and Mexico and, and Canada uh, across you know, all three entities, I think is really powerful. It doesn't mean there's not an international flavor to it. You know, For example, the company that's putting the biggest investment in semiconductor manufacturing in the United States is uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. They're putting $12 billion into Arizona. And so you know, it can still be global companies uh, that have global competencies, et cetera. But, you know, the idea that we ship things, you know, 10,000 air miles uh, to ultimately end up in a place that's, you know, 200 miles from where it started just seems crazy. Just like Malcolm McLean did with shipping, it's going to take another technological leap to get us where we need to be going and help us leapfrog future supply chain log jams. There's a big role for technology. So if there is an issue propagating up in one you know, sector or area, uh, it can be more quickly understood and more quickly dealt with. There's uh, all kinds of technology that we refer to collectively as Industry 4.0, which basically is you know, automation tools and technology that can actually help remove labor, uh, especially for very rote, mundane sort of jobs and tasks uh, from you know, the production. And so what happens is well, if you are able to remove labor from the process, then some of the advantage of being a low-cost country goes away because there's less low-cost labor that you're putting into the process. And so we see that as a major advantage for you know Western countries or higher cost countries more broadly, uh, as they you know are able to use some of this technology to make the economics more viable, that they can bring that uh, production back onshore. But then the problem with that, Justin, I think, is that you get the argument rightly or wrongly, that, well, hang on a second, what about jobs then? You know, if you're going to remove the human labor component and you're going to digitize or you're going to rely more upon AI, then you may be shoring up your supply chain. But what you're doing is you're creating economic harms potentially for the American worker. I think it's a very real concern uh, and it's a balance. You know, there's unfortunately no free lunch on either side of this. And so it's one of the challenges that we're going to have as a country to to wrestle with over the next years. You know, you know, I would ask that in that line of argumentation, you know, flip it around and say, what's the alternative that we don't have any jobs, that we don't have any capacity. I mean, I think that there needs to be um, some level of trade-offs that we make as, as a society between those two. How do you advise companies like, you know, on that on those questions when they say, hey, listen, Justin, this is challenging because I saw during the pandemic just how fragile the supply chain was when it pertains to my business. And now I got to think about this next one. And I'm wrestling with all of these myriad issues. I'm wrestling with labor concerns and making sure that I am, you know, doing good of my workers. I'm also concerned with my shareholders. I'm also concerned with, you know, the environment. Like there are so many needles to thread. And I'm just curious, how do you start the solutions process? Let's start with data. If I'm a CEO and I can go to my investors and say, I understand that we're investing, you know, three cents per share in making our supply chain more resilient. But let me show you if we had done that, what would have happened in 2019 and what would have happened in 2020, so on and so forth. That's really powerful. There's there's another point that I want to make that, you know, is sort of 
uh, also I think critically important, which is there's a lot of what I talked about with technology requires collaboration and coordination. I think that the innovation aspect takes care of itself. You know, our entrepreneurs are unmatched, I believe, in the world. And, you know, given a sort of a clear target of something to do, I think we'll be outstanding at actually making it happen in ways that I can't anticipate and, and neither of us could sort of come up with today. The biggest issue is that I think that we're not clear as what we want to do as a country and what we'll support and where the biggest priorities are for us to invest against. And so, you know, before we get to the innovation, I think we need the clarity of purpose and direction. No doubt, consumers, governments and private industry will have to be more mindful of the details in the future to keep the flow of goods and traffic moving, especially if we want things to be safe, efficient and sustainable. It's as big as shipping containers halfway across the world and as small as a present under a tree. The pandemic has woken us all up. How after when this is all over, do you feel like you're able to kind of convince people that this is a really important thing? What certainly helps when it hits them and something they're they're trying to do as we move into the holiday season, if you can't get your kids toys or can't buy your spouse or loved one a, a tablet because of supply chain issues, I think it's real awakening for people. You know, I'm not of the illusion that uh, everyone will love as manufacturing supply chains and this will be a evergreen topic for the next years and years. But I think that if we can, as a country, start to have a bit of a dialogue around, you know, strategically what is important for us and how do we think about making sure that, you know, we can secure our prosperity in the future as it relates to manufacturing and supply chains, I think that's a great start. From Professor Willie Shee's perspective, we've already seen some of that kind of experimentation at the top levels of government and in circumstances that were a matter of life or death, in coordination between industry and government when it came to creating COVID-19 vaccines. One of the things that happened in the pandemic was the U.S. led the world in mRNA vaccines from Moderna, from Pfizer and their partner BioNTech. And while a lot of us think this was a miracle that happened over the course of really the last 18 months or two years. The first mRNA vaccine was actually proposed in 1990. And the reason the U.S. led is because we made phenomenal investments in genomics in the form of the Human Genome Program, in the life sciences, in biotech in general over the 1990s and the 2000s. By investing in that basic science, which is what the U.S. is good at. We've really led the world in that. COVID-19 has shown our global supply chain to be an immensely complicated and interconnected web of freeways and traffic arteries that relies on trillions of small pieces to fall into place to keep economies and consumers and our lives driving along day to day. So the next time you head out in your car or your bike and travel along the road, it'll probably be harder to ignore the layers upon layers of additional planning and logistics and materials that make any journey possible. From the parts that keep the car humming, to the inner tubes that keep our bike wheels turning, to the signs and signals that regulate that flow. Sometimes it will be up to small businesses and individuals to make minor adjustments where they can, to maintain the balance of things. For Dmitri Rumschlag, that's meant looking at what he has instead of what he's still waiting for. So we source 
high quality older bikes and we make them totally practical. Um, we put bigger tires on them, more street ready stuff, more comfortable bars. And instead of recycling products, like sometimes people literally drop off two or three bikes they've had for 10 or 15, 25 years. And uh, they'll be like, oh, I was going to take it to the dump, but you guys can probably do something with it. So we, we take them apart and we, we try to make the sport more accessible by like taking these old parts and saying, well, that's, that never goes bad. It's a piece of metal. We do love our bicycles, you know, especially us mechanical engineers. We're like tinkering around. And so we'll like say, oh, well, let's bend it. Let's bend it and see what happens. Let's bend it and see what happens. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we move from the global supply chain to the infrastructure that keeps it all moving. 